Blade Runner is the greatest cult film of all time. I would make a phone call and say, how can I hang a girl on a meat hook and get a PG rating? And they said, well, you can't. Low budget movie man. Hey, anybody got a chainsaw? Pocket Orange is one of the greatest films of all time. A very edgy drama. Malcolm McDowell really grounds that film. I was thrilled with it. You can't try to do it, it just happens by accident. Today's filmmakers all owe George Romero, especially if Night of the Living Dead, so much cred. Everybody copies him. He's the originator. He's the master. I think it's just a cult of one. I don't have to check with anybody else. Nobody else needs to like it. Welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Adam Kautzer, and with me today, of course, is uh, my, uh, like, you know, the, the co-host, the co-host to end all co-hosts. <laughs> Scott Phillips. <laughs> uh, we are back today with another one-off, of course, and as you can tell by the title, we are actually continuing on this docu-series called Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. Uh, this time we're looking at part two, which uh, by the time you're listening to this will have been just released onto iTunes. Uh, part two is dealing with horror and sci-fi. Um, Scott, uh, why don't we just kind of get into uh, like get into the get into the docu uh, the the docu series and then also just kind of start to talk about the films that they cover which i think worked really well for us last time um so what did you think of the episode just as of it's i mean i i i feel really weird calling them episodes because they kind of feel like episodes but they also kind of feel like um like separate documentaries onto themselves yeah. Yeah, well, and I and I think that's the uh, the the interesting thing uh, about the way that they've put it together uh, is that they've they've grouped it in a way that maybe if a topic doesn't interest you, then you could skip that one, watch another one, and you don't feel like you're coming in in the middle of something. Now, you and I kind of have far-reaching enough film interests that, you know, we wanted to watch all three. Yes. And I would certainly recommend to folks checking out all three based on the first two. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it is, in a way, kind of episodic, but like feature-length episodic. So it's like, you know, if midnight movies aren't really your thing, you could skip that one and watch this one uh, or, you know, what have you mix and match however you wish. I think what will wind up happening is whichever one is kind of your entry into the series, you'll probably want to go back and watch the other two. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this one was definitely uh, in our wheelhouse with it being horror and sci-fi films. Absolutely. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I feel like it was, <clears throat> I mean, and all, you know, um, all apologies to the first episode. I, I feel like this one was like, for me, this one was much more my speed. Like cult. I mean, you know, midnight films are are a thing for me. Uh, I I love I love them, but like horror and sci-fi is where I plant my flag. Like which which is which is interesting because I know for a fact that I plant my 
flag harder on sci-fi than you do, and you plant your flag harder on horror than I do, but we both have love for both of the genres, which I, yeah. I which I, uh, which I find is like kind of like the way that we approach things in, uh, like you know, generally cinematically, like it's like we're like two halves of a whole, like even though each one of us has kind of like that really hardcore, like you said, like, you know, that hard knowledge base of any particular genre. And we both have affection for the genres. It's just that where we grew, like, like how we grew up and like our formative, like tastes are, are just slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, uh, uh, my wife likes dramas she likes crime stuff. Like she's a huge, you know, Bosch fan, mm-hmm. the TV series, uh, watches crime films with me, loves, you know, Michael Mann movies and stuff like that. But her dividing line is kind of like horror and sci-fi. Uh, I, I think that hard sci-fi, like mentally provoking possible futures kind of sci-fi, she could probably get into uh, but the majority of it, no, and then no horror movies whatsoever. So it'll be pretty funny uh, when I'm talking about a possible festival or or getting in, you know, maybe some screener access to something. And she'll say, well, now, is this something that I'd want to watch or is this going to be one of your movies? Mm-hmm. And so so this is the the documentary of my movies. <laughs> I can guarantee you on the roster of films that they go through, my wife would not have seen. Well, she probably has seen Blade Runner with me, and that's about it. Yeah. So uh, so this is very much, uh, you know, my my niche uh, since I was a kid. I mean, I loved going to the movies uh, in general, but I love nothing more. Uh, than horror films and sci-fi films. I love to go see uh, that stuff. If you name from about the time, let's say I turned 16 in 1985, which means that I could drive. (laughs) And so you move 1985 forward. And if it was a horror or a sci-fi film that played nationwide, I probably saw it in a theater uh, because I just, you know, love that stuff. And so a lot of this was just going down memory lane, uh, and uh, and revisiting some things I hadn't watched in a long time, uh, and then there were actually a couple I hadn't seen, so that was uh, that was interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, um, so like my history with this, and it, and it, and like we've talked about before, it shows my it shows our gap, our ten year gap, which is is that um, about the time like around eighty five like is when like you know my childhood formative years began and the thing was is that so my mother and father were both very like they were very deeply in love with sci-fi my dad um was more of a um was more of a book like a a, a book sci-fi guy so he was like the super nerd like i mean like cuz you know like as we both know like when you read a genre that's that's like you know that's taking it to another level and so like my dad was all about yeah. uh you know asimov and like every like every sci-fi author that you could possibly think of and even yep. now still still now Heinlein, yes Philip K. dick 
Exactly. Yeah. Even Daniel Delaney. Delaney, yeah, Delaney was one of his favorites. Um, even now, my dad is still a like a, a, a voracious reader of sci-fi. Um, like if I wanna, if I want to know like what the the latest and greatest for sci-fi is, I just have to go and ask him, and he'll tell me because like he loves like he's uh, like uh, and that's where I got my love of sci-fi from was not so much my mother. My mother was more. Like, she liked the esoteric stuff. So, like, we're going to talk about Liquid Sky, um, which is a movie I've known about for years. Like, and I was super happy when Vinegar or Vinegar Syndrome released it because my mother showed it to me. Like, like right. um, I may not have the best relationship. With, I have no relationship with my mother now. But in during my childhood, she would always show me the most esoteric films and didn't care the, the rating or not rating and, like, what was happening on screen. It was really weird. Like, Buckaroo Bonds. I was like, like is one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's a movie we saw opening weekend and we saw three times, dude. Like, and I distinctly remember because it was a big deal. Like that movie, and we'll get to that movie and the reason why it's a big deal for me, but that movie was a big deal in our house. So I didn't know it was a huge disaster of a movie. I just remembered that like Star Wars um, or like Back to the Future, I got to see that movie multiple times in the theater in the drive-in. So, um, so this, and then horror was something I came to on my own. Like my, my, my dad was kind of a horror fan, but he was what I'd like to call like entry level surface level horror fan. So like things like the fog, um, things like say like, um, Halloween were, were, were available and able to watch, but the harder stuff he did not like. And my mother either. My my mom, my mother liked social horror. So I did get to see Night of the Living Dead very early. Um and I did get to see Dawn of the Dead very early. But Right. Again, very surface level. It wasn't until I was a little bit older, like, you know, like around what you're like sixteen was when I really started to deep dive into horror and and found like my love and what I loved about horror. So, um, it was speaking of which, uh, what I love is that, that they give the King of, of the, of, of what I would figure cult horror, his due right away. Like the two of them, like, um, so like they get right into night of the living dead and, and dawn of the dead for, and George Romero. Um, Which I love. Like, I love the fact that they just kind of like outright, like the film doesn't say it, but it kind of does and says, these are the two movies. Like, if you're talking cult horror films, these are the, these are the, the A and B, the Alpha and the Omega of, uh, of horror. And then, the, and then they have like the asterisk, which I feel so sad about the asterisk with, with Texas Chainsaw and Toby, because it always feels like Toby is, always has that asterisk against his name. Right. You know, um, which... And, and, it, and it's a great film in its own right, obviously. Oh, God, yes. God, yes. Like, um, you know, and the, the fascinating thing uh, about the, the film, what the film pointed out, and I haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a while, but it is interesting that everybody always associates it with one of the most violent films they've ever seen. Yeah. And then, as they aptly pointed out and showed with some clips, how much of that is really your own imagination? Yep. It's... How, you know, you know the, the, that it cuts away or it uses a camera perspective uh, where the violence is implied. 
And so, because I, I, I think back to um, the Texas Chainsaw remake, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was what, what was that, 10 years ago? Probably longer than that. Oh, it was more like 20, um, I think. Or 15. Yeah. No, 15. 15. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, you know, they're they're running from Leatherface, and he just kind of, you know, swings the chainsaw, and off comes a leg, and, you know, it's yeah. just so much more graphically uh, violent on screen. And yet I associate the first one as being the more violent and more frightening of the two. Oh, absolutely. Um, like what I love is, is that waters just straight out calls it one of his favorite films of all time. And yeah, it, and it feels like, like that's the weird thing is, is that what I heard him say it, I'm like, that makes complete sense. John waters saying that Texas chainsaw is one of his favorite films because what I think, like, and Toby actually talked about this in the interview, uh, like in the in the in the documentary, which is which is so beautiful. Like, there's three filmmakers that we lost in 2017 that are all present in, or I'm sorry, uh, not 2017, two in 2017, and one just recently that are all present in this documentary: Stuart Gordon, um, George Romero, and Toby Hooper, and all of them right. are all of them make appearances in this and have a say in what their film means, which is beautiful. Like, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's great. Um, what I love about like, so like what I feel like Texas, like the thing that I, the thing that I finally grasp what scares me about Texas chainsaw massacre, like the thing that gets under my skin every single time is something that he articulated that I've never heard him articulate before, which was, it was the pitch of how scared every like the the pitch of the screams and how scared everybody is on screen and his his theory which actually like so I went back and I watched a little of Texas Chainsaw I actually watched it earlier this year because I'm like going through the Joe Bob Briggs last drive-in stuff and he actually had an episode that he mm-hmm. did Texas Chainsaw on it's a 90 minute movie and it's a three and a half hour last drive-in that tells you how much Joe Bob I mean Joe Bob loves the film um right but the thing that I didn't get from there that I actually got from Toby directly when he was talking about it was the pitch at which people are genuinely frightened in the film and it kind of seeps into you in this whole Pavlonian um, way that affects you because like literally like the cast is sitting there and they're genuine, they feel genuinely frightened and they have that, they have those screams that can, that only feel like they're real screams. And it was something I'd never thought about before that I, I'm like, Oh wow, that is actually that's actually pitch perfect as to the reason why. And it's also just, it's a beautifully ugly film. Like, do you know what I mean? Right. Like, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. like yeah. everything, like the whole aesthetic that Toby Hooper uh, has like done in this film is very kind of, it's, it's exactly what Rob Zombie has tried to do in all of his films. And I think that mm-hmm. has only gotten right once in his films, which is the film that they actually talk about in this movie, The Devil's Rejects, which we'll get to. It's good to see Sid Haig. Oh, yeah. Uh, interviewed because that would be another person who has died within the last, you know, few years. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. So add him to, to people that uh, uh, this film brings in interviews uh, with. Uh, who is who is now gone? But uh, 
Do you um going back to to Romero? I kind uh-huh. of jumped the gun there and started talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, do you have that Criterion Collection Night of the Living Dead? Yep, I've watched it like four times. Like it's, yeah, it's whoo. yeah, it, it's amazing. Yeah, like like let's just stop and like let's just stop and tell people like if you don't have the Criterion's Night of the Living Dead, you owe it to yourself to buy it. It is they they talk a lot about film school in a box. But if you want to know, like, this isn't film school in a box. This is film history in a box. Like, literally, there's, I think there's possibly about 10 hours of special features on across two discs. Um, it's it's amazing. They even have an alternate cut of the film, uh, which I've seen twice, and it's, it's nigh unwatchable. Like that's how much I love <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. Um, right. We don't t- we don't often talk about our our foundational films, which I, I like that the fact that Time Warp in its uh, two parts uh, like prompts us to talk about foundational films. Yeah, which- yeah, it definitely sparks that conversation, and I think if folks watch the movie, they're going to have this same reaction. Uh, that we're having talking about, you know, what were kind of their gateway films into certain genres and and the way things affect them and, and comparing and contrasting the big influences uh, in their kind of cinematic lives. And so uh, it's, it's interesting because you don't normally think of like a film as almost like a water cooler discussion starter. And yep. that's really what these films are. I mean, it's it's a good documentary uh, in the sense that it brings together a lot of information in a well-edited short span of time. Uh, but the other thing that it's going to do is it's going to make you want to rewatch stuff. It's going to make you want to talk about film with other people. Uh, and so that's great. I mean, you know, if you're going to do a film about film, it, it needs to produce that reaction. Uh, and it does. No, absolutely it does. And yeah, that Night of the Living Dead is like it is a truly foundational film for me. Like I saw it at the right age. I saw it like I know this is going to sound really psychotic, but I saw it around 10 or 11. And it's the perfect age to see that film because it feels like a real document. It feels like a documentary. Um, the way that Romero shot it, the way that it plays out, like the the kind of. What I love about the about the film that separates it from all of the different night films uh, or the um, the dead films is that there's a matter of factly kind of way that he shoots the film, and I think that a lot had to do with uh, the the special effects and not being able to get like a true special like so like the the other funny thing is um did you know that Tom Savini was supposed to do the first movie and he <laughs> no and no, he I didn't. and then he enlisted like i knew that he was a combat photographer in um right, right. in vietnam and that's kind of like where he got his um he got a lot of his like uh like like the reason why he is so good at the effects work is because literally he had um, he had the foundation because of the work he did in Vietnam, but I did not know that he was supposed to do the first film. It makes sense because he was from Pittsburgh, um, right? but I had no idea that he was supposed to do that. And then he just like a few days prior to getting the job, he enlisted into, uh, he enlisted uh, to go to Vietnam as a combat photographer. And I was just like, wow, that is, that is wild to think that we could have the first three movies, like the like 
the like that combo of Savini and Romero in all three of them if Savini had not enlisted but then if he hadn't enlisted there's no way we would have had Tom Savini as the person that we have today the guy who did Maniac the guy who did the first uh Friday the 13th which I will say is a terrible fucking movie the best part about that is the unreal special effects that he did in that movie like I prefer I prefer part two more than I prefer part part one yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I I agree with that as well. I'm the same way. You know, the interesting thing with the, uh, for me, with Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, I came to that pretty late. Oh, I mean, I was like in college when I saw that movie. Ah, uh, was it like a film and, course or was it uh, like? No, no, it okay. was, uh, we had like a, a big, you know, student act center and oh, okay. they would have movies there. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times it was stuff that, you know, almost like a, like a second run movie, like, you know, Goodfellas came out in the theater theaters and then six months later they were playing it there. Ah, okay. Uh, and that kind of thing. And so, but this was just something that they did. I don't even remember now if it was October, or if it was some kind of like an event, uh, or something, but I had always been the most commercial film goer that you could imagine as a kid. You know, I like the big, glossy, you know, great sound, you know, great picture, all that kind of stuff. And so I can remember, you know, over the years seeing clips of Night of the Living Dead. And I can remember that then my aesthetic was, man, who would want to watch that old cheap ass looking black and white, you know, uh, whatever and so it's just <laughs> funny how your aesthetic changes with time. At least I hope it does. <laughs> you know, yeah. I hope people have a wider palette of films that they watch, you know, uh, in their 30s, 40s and 50s than when they were teenagers. You know, it's kind of like when you're a little kid and, uh, you know, uh, if you can't put ketchup on it, you don't want to eat it, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and so hopefully your, your palate for food expands as well. And so I can remember seeing uh, – uh, night of the living dead in uh college and sitting there just thinking holy shit i have just been sleeping on this you know and it was it was one of those movies that just was kind of an eye-opener for me uh the idea that you know all movies don't kind of have to fit into this kind of i don't know it wasn't necessarily narrow because i watched all kinds of genres but I was really just watching the movies that were of my time. Yes. And not watching back. And so uh, and so that uh, that started to change at that point. Uh, I didn't have nearly the kind of access that people, of course, have now. I mean, I would have seen uh, Night of the Living Dead maybe in 88, 89, something like that. And so those were not the days when just anything that you wanted was at your fingertips, but it became kind of a, a lifelong obsession uh, to, you know, expand the palette of of what I watch and and take in all different kinds of, of films at all different kinds of budgets and levels of sophistication and things of that nature. Uh, and uh, so it had a, a pretty big effect on, you know, what I consumed moving forward. Wow, that's amazing. Like I like that's that's like uh night was actually a true gateway drug for both of us. Um but you in a very different way, which is kind of awesome. Like I love that I love that you like 
you it expanded your horizons in in regards to the way that a film could be um and, and how it kind of i love when films do that is when they change what somebody thinks a film is as opposed right. to like yeah, absolutely uh, as opposed to like just like sitting there and just like like making you a fan of something like where like something actually changes like you chemically and makes you a different person like um like it, it's funny because uh i often like it, it, it's fashionable right now to like love dawn more than than night but i can't like i just cannot do it like like everything inside of me makes me not like like it because dawn is good like like let's be honest it's 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 great but it's not night and night is just so just i don't know like i keep on going back to it and it's like this it's like this 90 minute movie where dawn is kind of like this like it's an epic it's it's two hours and what two, uh, two hours and 15 minutes uh, it's it's got a lot of gore it's it, it's funny and goofy and silly in certain places where like night is just contained tension and horror and just speaks to so much. Like even now, like I think that like watching it now, cause I want to go back and watch it. Like as soon as I saw this, I was like, yeah, I gotta go fucking back and watch it. I gotta br bring out my criterion disc again and watch it. It has a beautiful transfer also guys like, um, uh, MoMA, um, the modern, uh, the modern museum of art, uh, or the metropolitan, modern museum of art recently restored it as um with 4k uh, a 4k restoration and it looks gorgeous on blu-ray just gorgeous um and uh it just makes me want to go back and watch it which i probably will which will probably give me nightmares just because of how contained it is and how much it feels like a, a current like what we're going through currently with our self-quarantine shelter in place uh <laughs> right um, but, uh, another film that I feel like they, 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 they really kind of like hit the nail on the head is, is, uh, the evil dead. Like they, they give it its time in the sun also. I mean, which like, I mean, my generation, I, I, my generation, I feel like we worship at the altar of evil dead and Sam Raimi, like all three of the films. Uh, um, right. so much so that like, we've kind of like my generation has made Bruce Campbell, this like B movie God that like, you know, like, I mean, so much so that we, we got a tell a television series out of, I mean, they even say it like there's a remake and a television series starring the original guy from 1981. Like, like, you know, the, like even the story of evil dead is kind of legendary with these these group of college kids that go into the like, you know, Tennessee woods and create this movie that becomes this cult, like, you know, th this cult icon iconography or iconic right. like film of the 1980s. Um, it, it is definitely interesting. And um, I was going to ask like, because you were around, you were the age, you would be the prime age for that film. Like, was the Stephen King quote the thing that got you into theaters, or were you interested in it, period? You know, I would say, I'm trying to remember exactly how I came to that. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, King was a huge influence. Uh, you know, I mean, I read uh, all of his books uh, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, uh, did the best that I could uh, to uh, to read all of his stuff. And so, yeah, if he gave something his seal of approval uh, at some point in, you know, the 80s, then, I mean, that was the best endorsement you could possibly get. Uh, you know, I hate to say it as a film critic, but, you know, kind of film critics be damned if Stephen King said uh, that this was awesome. Y'all need to go see it. Uh, horror fans would just flock to go do whatever it was. Yeah. And so I'm pretty sure that that is is how it happened. I mean, these are the days when, you know, Stephen King was doing American Express commercials and, you know, I mean, he, he was on television doing all kinds of little, you know, commercials and promotions. And I mean, he was just, you know, I mean, just like they called him the king of horror. And that was no uh, exaggeration. And so uh, he has definitely, uh, you know, been instrumental in marketing certain things. Heck, I can remember. I mean, you want to talk about the extent to which I listened to kind of just his personal aesthetic uh, he had that column in Entertainment Weekly. Yes. In was it probably the late nineties? Maybe it was uh, and, early two thousands. Early two thousands. Okay. I remember and, specifically. And, yeah. Yeah, and and he recommended Veronica Mars, mm. the television show, and I had never seen it. I knew what it was, but it just you know for whatever reason didn't seem like my kind of thing, and so he recommends it as one of these. This is the best show on TV. You're not watching kind of column. And uh, my wife and I started watching it and just became addicted to it. You know, it was it, it became like a DVD binge for us uh, when, uh, you know, before streaming. And so uh, so King has always been a, a big influence in, in in my life of consuming pop culture. And that is probably where I stumbled upon Evil Dead. OK, absolutely. Um, uh, so. <laughs> Uh, a film that I'm not going to talk about just because I, I don't like. So I was going to ask you, like, I, I'll tell you what my opinion of the human centipede is, but I'm also curious about what your opinion of the human centipede is. Have you seen it? I have not. Like, I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I I knew the premise, and it just uh seems you know i don't know just so vile that i was just like that's that is that is beyond my level uh of interest and so i never never watched it yeah so i did see it um it's it's just a piece of shit i mean literally it's a piece of shit (laughs) um so i mean i can under okay so like with that said i understand certain people like I understand a certain sector of people that like that film or, or like that that series of films because it's like four of them, I think. Um, the saddest part to me, like the saddest part is is that the guy who um, the star of it, Dieter Laser, like, Jesus Christ. And then mm-hmm. Tom's like watching Tom's like, okay, so the weirder part is is that Dieter Laser died. He was murdered and they don't talk about it, which I find mm-hmm. is weird in its own right. But also Tom six is just a fucking idiot. Like, I'm sorry, but it's like, okay. So like, like, let's just go to a side note because I find it, I I find it fascinating. And we have not talked about this. Have you seen the beastie boys story on Apple TV yet? 
no, you know, I've been really wanting to see that. And it's just, you know, kind of in my, uh, a perpetually growing watch Watchless. list. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, but I'm definitely interested in it. Okay, yeah. Please do. Um, but I'm going to like talk about that film because, okay. So there's a certain moment, um, where they finally dice. They they talk about um Adam Yauch's like alt persona. Um, uh, uh what's uh, Nathaniel Hornblower? Like the the direct the supposed director of a lot of the Beastie Boys videos, uh, you right. fu- you've seen them on MTV. Literally, Tom Six is that, except for not as funny. It's been recycled because you know Yauk did it before and did it much better, and it's just everything about the Human Centipede just reeks of me of insincerity and somebody trying to be a sycophantic like like fame chaser right yeah yeah just just seeking to be controversial and and uh and make some kind of a splash absolutely and i just i like stunt exactly and so like everything about it is like where where yauk and the hornblower stuff was genuine because it was something out of like this like kind of milieu that he was he was trying to do like which is fun it was just all right fun yeah yeah yeah, exactly Uh, this is just all just the wrong like headedness so like i appreciate people like liking the human centipede and loving everything that tom six does fine you know what you want to do that that's fine but i just it just wasn't for me and it's not because it's gross it's because there's no purpose to it whereas like say flip it over to where I've had a very contentious relate. I don't know about you, but I've had a very contentious relationship with Rob Zombie because I keep on coming back to him because I want him to make something as powerful and as like sharp as the Devil's Rejects, and it just doesn't happen for me. Right. You know where like how the House of a Thousand Corpses, like how I came to Devil's Rejects was I watched House of a Thousand Corpses and I went, huh, yeah. That's like the most Rob Zombie thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that's literally a music video stretched out 90 minutes. I have no, there's nothing aesthetically beautiful or like there's nothing that I can find about it that I love. And then I've never, I've never been a big fan of his. I have seen uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. I have seen The Devil's Rejects. Both of them just left me going. I just don't get it. I mean, okay. It's evidently not on my wavelength kind of a thing. And uh, I absolutely hated his remake of Halloween. Both of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, exactly. I just I thought they were awful. And uh, so, you know, and so, but I think that's kind of in a way the definition of, of cult film. You know, yes. some people just think that it's just absolutely amazing and just have this, you know, very fervent fandom and uh, and and you know fanhood or whatever you want to call it uh, over loving them and then other people look at it and go man I don't know what your deal is because I just don't see it and to me that's kind of one of the definitions of a cult film so for people who you know really really dig it cool I just have never been on his his wavelength there's something about uh, you know kind of the carpenter subtlety to his version of Halloween that I will always prefer. Uh, to the brute force, you know, graphically violent version that uh, that he put together. Absolutely. Like, I, but Devil's Rejects for me is something that, like, it's 
it, it's it's his oh like it's the thing that I can always like go back to and go this one just this one like I've like like when I saw it in the I theaters you give that and I might need to give that one another try I I mean it's been years it, since I've seen that so my my sensibilities obviously change over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. But everything else for me has always left me cold, especially the Halloween films. Like, oh man, talk about a, a an outright rejection. Like, it was a it was a bad time to be a horror fan when those were out because those were like, oh god, it seemed like all the all the stuff that crit <laughs> like all the stuff that critics complained about about everything else in horror, like 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 what they felt like horror was about, was in Rob Zombie's like two Halloween right. films like nothing else like I never agreed with like critics about like uh like Ahas films like uh like the hills have eyes which I feel is a great like it, it's a superior mm-hmm. film to the original um you know all of those supposed torture porn films like I never felt like critics like I right. felt like critics were over exaggerating except for with Halloween and Halloween too I've always felt like those are just dumb, blunt instruments that don't do anything for me. Um, speaking of violence and, and stuff, I, I was genuinely actually shocked to see that they included um, A Clockwork Orange, which... Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's strange to think of a film that was nominated for an Oscar as a, as a cult film. And, uh, that, uh, that actually kind of made me, you know, I was trying to kind of almost find my own definition of, of cult film. And, and it makes you wonder if, if something can't be a cult film and then evolve out of its cult status. Well, which leads uh, us because to me, you know, yeah. like, go ahead. Sorry. sorry. The, the Blade Runner for me. Yes. That's know, what I was going to uh, say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is, it's universally accepted now as as being you know just a masterpiece of science fiction and and i think most anybody who knows anything about film uh has it ranked very very highly uh on their their films of all time kind of list and so i you know just the lack of box office success is not something uh that makes a film a cult film to me or the fact that it was underappreciated at the time if it has risen to almost universal acclaim, uh, I could go with the idea that maybe it began as a cult film uh, and and has risen uh, in appreciation since then. Uh, but to me, it's not anymore. No. And, and, and that was my same reaction to uh, A Clockwork Orange. I think you'd have a hard time characterizing much of anything that Stanley Kubrick uh, produced as as being a cult film anymore when he's considered you know one of the greatest filmmakers of all time and some people would argue the greatest filmmaker of all time absolutely but what what I found interesting was was that the way that it became a cult film like the way that they're they're they were framing it because like the way that like it was very smart to do Blade Runner and Clockwork together like they they didn't do them together but they did them one after another where right. Where, like, Clockwork, if you really think about it, Clockwork's stamp on cinema has purposely been faded away because we don't talk about it anymore. Like, Clockwork used to be a film that, like, at least in my, like, so, like, my cinematic experience, I always remember in the 80s and the 90s, Clockwork being an ever-present, like, 
discussion piece because it handled violence so differently than most films do. Like that and Taxi Driver, they were like the punk rock films. Like if right. like, because they were commercially were produced by a studio. Um, even then, when when I was watching them, people would say these movies would never be made by the studios anymore. They just could not be made. Um, Kubrick himself pulled the movie from the UK. Like so, right. a, like a movie that was like initially high esteemed best picture, best director. Um, Malcolm McDowell, I think, even got a best actor nomination out of this movie. I think and, that's right. And. It got pulled from it got pulled from UK circulation. Period. So, like in the US, it was still around, but it was a, a midnight movie. And it's like I know that a lot of people like there are two movies that got in that got X ratings that got Best Picture nominations, or three of them in the seventies, which is right. wild to me. Or sixties and seventies, sixty nine, um, uh, Midnight Cowboy, which you watch now and you go. I understand because it was the subject matter. Clockwork Orange, right. which got an X rating, like it initially got an R, and then it got re like I was reading about it, it got re re rated X, and with I mean with good reason, like like it's not the it's not the violence as much as it is the content of the violence and how the violence is portrayed, and then mm -hmm. of course Last Tango in Paris, which I mean. Right. Um, now there's this whole, like, I, like, we can't even get into the complications of, like, what's happened over the last, like, three or four yeah. years with... Yeah, that film's <sighs> become problematic, to say the least. Yes, I mean, literally problematic, like, like, it's not even, like, the, it's not even, like, the, 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 the story, it's the content inside of it, which has become, right. which... Wow. Like, I'm not going to unpack that, guys. You guys want to go and find out about what I'm talking about? Just Google it, and you will very... Specifically, Google Maria Schneider interview the last uh, last tango in Paris, and you will find everything you need to know. Um, yep. But what's fascinating to me is with a Clockwork Orange, it went from this like from everything I heard, and then I actually talked to my dad about it, and he goes, "Fuck yeah, this was a, that was a huge movie." Like he's like, "I was 22 or 23 when it came out." He's like, "It's a big. It was a big movie with." like younger like the people in their 20s it was mm -hmm. this kind of like anti-establishment movie but then it's it kind of got drew back and it got like even in the u.s it kind of like it didn't play as much and then it was uh, at the advent of of uh, vhs and laserdisc that it came into circulation and it just became this thing that people watched but it was always caught like it was always like it's a dangerous movie so i'm i'm i'm, I'm curious about it because like I, I I own it. I have it on Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. um, right. I've watched it. Um, my viewing of it now, like, it's evolved. Like, all Kubrick films, like, uh, like, and it's not just because of your taste. It's also just the way that Kubrick films stuff. It makes it open for the most wildly different view viewings of films that you'll ever have if you give it some years um and this one is just wow like you like uh, the last time i saw it i was like it was hard it was a hard watch mm -hmm. uh, just all around yeah, it's a very uncomfortable movie to to say the least and like it it's weird because it's irresponsible but responsible 
if that makes any sense whatsoever. Like, and sure. I, and it's also the way that he films it, the the music. Like, I think that what doesn't get enough credit in that movie is Wendy uh, Wendy Carlos's music that Kubrick. Like, it, it was a collaboration between the two. The the music. Mm-hmm. The, the use of Shakespeare and how he or not Shakespeare, uh, Mozart and how he used Beethoven. Sorry, it was Beethoven. Uh, was it Beethoven or Mozart? Which one was it? <laughs> now I'm confused. Yeah, but it's his use of classical. Oh, go ahead. Beethoven. Beethoven. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Beethoven. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his use of it in an electronic like with synthesizers, which was it's interesting. Like, like it, it's definitely like it's definitely become, it's grown into a cult movie. Which is interesting, whereas, like Blade Runner has moved out of its cult status, and just like like you said, like two, like the two movies that you you can always hear on a sci fi list of greatest of all times are two thousand and one and Blade Runner, always. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, how about uh, to 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 move on to to uh, <laughs> one that would be definitely lesser in the uh, quality category. Uh, one of the ones I had not seen. Have you seen Death Race 2000? Yes. Paul Bartels? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, that one? Okay, so I, I, like, okay, have you, do you watch Paul, have you seen Paul Bartel films? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is just for whatever reason, one that, you know, I know of, of course, mm-hmm. and, and has been kind of legendary in its own way, and I've just never taken the time to watch it. It's just kind of one of those blind spot uh, films for me, but when they were showing some of the footage and 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 had the interview uh, about Sylvester Stallone, Stallone. <laughs> uh, I thought that was great. I thought that was I won't I won't say what it is because uh, you you need to see it. But the anecdote uh, of his uh, cast member uh, about him in his early years, his kind of struggling years, I thought was was really cool. No, absolutely. Um, no, I I love that's actually my favorite Bartel film. Um, oh, cool. I'm definitely is it you're my physical media maestro is it available like a good version of it by anybody or no absolutely shout factory um oh cool so like I don't think like, I even realized that yeah it's it's about the same level as the uh piranha uh blu-ray if you have the piranha gotcha. blu-ray yeah, so like yeah, it, yeah. they treat it like that so like there's a great commentary with um uh, because unfortunately Paul Bartel passed um, in the what was it the early two thousands late nineties like it was a it was a, it was a bit back but um, Mary Warnoff and and um, uh, and uh, Roger Corman have this wonderful commentary track. There's a bunch of special features in it, uh, given everything context, uh, a great making of. Uh, so yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Scream, uh, Scream Shout Factory. Their uh, their Roger Corman presents line, like mm-hmm. it's it's a part of that. So if gotcha, uh, it's easy to get. Um, it's a it's a fun film. It's a very Paul Bartel film, um, which is always funny to me to say because he's definitely one of those guys that's on the fringes. Like if you think about it, like him and Mary Warnoff, like, like they just feel like real artists that happen to mm-hmm. make, happen to make films every once in a while. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that one's good. I really like that one. It's like I said, it's my favorite Paul Bartel film because I think it's, it's because it's the first one that I saw. And then I went to see the others and they're good, but they don't have that sense of like they don't they have um 
this one doesn't have like the 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 I I hate to use the word condescending, but it always feels like Bartell is being condescending to his audience. Like he knows, like I know that Paul Bartell is smarter than me, but I don't need to be told that at a constant <laughs> clip. <laughs> you know, um, right? It, but it is definitely fun. Now I have to counter that with, I think a film that we both. Like, I don't know, like, it's been so long since I've seen it, but it's now instantly at the top of my rewatch list. Um, a, a filmmaker that we both love, John Sayles, and them, oh, yeah. give, them giving love to Brother from Another Planet. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Which I was like, damn, I haven't seen this in so long. And then it, because of how good the film is, like, when I saw, like, the clips, it instantly made me recall everything about that movie. And just how good it is. Um, like, sales is, like, I mean, we've, we've talked about, we we love sales. Like, this is something I don't think we've ever talked about on 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 Mike, is just how much we love sales um, and his specific, like, indie indie style. And this one is kind of like a, an, a random outlier in his style because yep. he, he happens to deal more with social issues and and dramaturgy than than actual genre i think what this and lone star are probably and even lone star i don't even consider that genre even though it is a mystery suit like proto western sure Um, but um how like how long has it been since you've seen brother from another planet Ooh, man it's been a long time long long time uh i i remember uh, you know, my introduction to John Sayles, it's interesting. If you ever think that the Oscars don't serve any kind of purpose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is just this kind of self-congratulatory thing where, uh, you know, the, the, the famous wealthy people give other famous wealthy people awards and, you know, all the knocks that you hear on that kind of stuff. I specifically remember the Oscar ceremony that year that there were a number of references to mate one. Yes. And, and I remember thinking, what is this movie? Like I'd seen it. I didn't know the filmmaker really. Uh, Cause uh, when did that come out? 80. It was like 84, I think. Yeah. I was about to say, I would have been like, you know, a teenager, 15, 16, something like that when it came out. And I remember thinking, what is this? You know, I mean, and, and the cast, you know, uh, was amazing. And I remember thinking, I need to see this. And so at some point in time, I managed to track down through like a local video store. And it was so powerful that I remembered it, it almost took my understanding of film to another level that it could resonate like that. Yes. And so I immediately became a, a John Sayles uh, fan. I don't know. Early on, I kind of understood. I guess I subscribed to the auteur theory before I even knew what the auteur theory was. And so I have always been someone who, if I find a couple of really good films and there's a director in common, I would say, you know, I wonder if the reason those two films are really good is because of that guy. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have to say often enough that gal because they don't get many opportunities to direct and especially not back in the eighties. Uh, but, um, 
I would I would see that. And so I became a watcher of filmographies and a watcher by like pedigree, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, my friends or my wife will be saying, you know, well, I mean, what's it about? You know, what's this? What's that? Who's in it? And all this. And I'm like, look, it's the new, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan film. So I'm going, I don't care what it's about. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, or, or, you know, whomever, you know, much more obscure filmmakers than that. I will take that same view. And so when I saw Mate One, it just made me say, man, I want to see anything that, that this guy was involved in. And so that is what took me to to Brother. Absolutely. Um, it, it was actually 87. Sorry. Um, and okay. you and I became. And that sounds about right. That sounds about because I would have been just about to start college. So I didn't quite think I had that level of sophistication you know at 15 or something so mm-hmm. that that's right I, I would be more 18 around the time that happened um it, it's interesting because you and i missed it by a year because the the next year is when i first saw my first john sales film and 1988 it was eight men out um which, yeah, yeah oh yeah and i love that movie oh god it, like one of the I showed that to our local film society oh uh my uh, my uh, joke was, you know, obviously I'm located here in Georgia, and so everybody around here, Atlanta Braves fans, myself included, and so the Braves didn't make the playoffs that year. And I said, well, there's not going to be any Braves baseball in the month of October, but we are going to have a baseball movie in the month of October. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I played uh, Eight Men Out for my local uh, the film society, and everybody loved it. I. It's oh god, it's so good. Um, but that was the film that, uh, and then you know, uh, like a, a similar on your line, along your lines of of thinking, you know, like how, you know, people want to want to trash Siskel and Ebert uh, for their thumbs up, thumbs down, and I mean, even me, I'm I'm very kind of uh, tempestuous about it uh, and their hatred of horror, but. They were, they were like the, other than Malton, they were like the chief critics that I could follow when I was a kid. And Eight Men Out was something that it was like one of those movies that they cherry picked to champion throughout the, the entire rest of that year when they saw it because they wanted it to get love because A, they were both from Chicago and B, they were both major, major, major um, baseball fans. Uh, Siskel was, uh, Ebert was a, a Cubs fan and Siskel was a Sox fan. So, but I mean, they both gloriously agreed on this film. And the thing that I always uh, like, I didn't understand what low budget meant. So when I saw this film, I thought it was like, this was fantastic. It was like a history piece and stuff. Um, And um, what I like, you know, when I saw the movie, it wasn't like it was low budget, even though it was low budget. I mean, I later found out that it was it was made on a shoestring, but that's the beauty of John Sayles. And it also made me go back to like over like the couple of years that like, cause it took a year to come out. So it was 89. So I was about 11 when I finally saw eight men out. Like I didn't get to see it in the theaters. They didn't, my mom and my dad didn't take me because it was, it was something that neither one of them wanted to see. Like shockingly, my dad was not a big, he didn't want to see like he didn't, it ended up being one of his favorite films. But initially when he saw the, what it was about, he wasn't a big fan of like, (laughs) like 
like putting something that he loved baseball into the dirt and that's what he thought it was about was like you know right. basically like you know taking pot shots at baseball which it really what it wasn't at baseball it was more like i find it's very interesting now that the film has become very prescient to me about like you know at least eight men out just like about the whole business of sports yeah, it uh, and and it basically, you know, to me was kind of the opposite. It was something about, you know, what tarnished the game. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. the shame that came out of uh, what was done to kind of, you know, what was then considered America's pastime and, you know, the all-American sport and everything like that. Uh, but it was funny that when you mentioned Siskel and Ebert, you know, another kind of overlap that we had, we were just at different ages watching it, but you know, you grew up, you know, out there in the LA area yeah. and everything like that, where you had access to everything that was coming out. Now you may have been a little kid, so you didn't get to go, Yeah, but, but it existed in your world. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting thing for me was, you know, I grew up in in Auburn, Alabama, where Auburn University is located. And so it's it was different than your typical southern town because, you know, you had a an international faculty, students from all over the country. So it was a bit more cosmopolitan than some southern towns. Ah, But in the end, you still had basically the movie theater selections of a 40,000 person town in Alabama. Yeah. And so those picks with Siskel and Ebert in my mind were kind of like the big city movies, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that sounds kind of countrified, I think to say something like that, uh, cause we weren't all, you know, ignorant little bumpkins, but the point is, uh, is access. And no, absolutely. so when I would see Siskel and Ebert talking about these movies, I'd be like, oh, those are the movies that play in like New York and L.A. and stuff like that that don't ever come around here. And so at some point, and I still do it to this day, I kind of started keeping lists. Like if they would talk about something that I'd be like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. And, you know, it might be a foreign film. It might have been one of these John Sales under the radar are kind of films, you know, whatever I would jot it down. Be like when I'm in my local video store, I will check and, and see if maybe somehow we get a copy in of this one of these days so that I can see it. And I'll always remember, uh, that I saw Akira Kurosawa's Ron that way. Yeah. Uh, I was in high school and, and they did an episode on it and were, and discussed it and we're talking how fantastic it was. And of course I remembered stuff like Shogun, Uh, that was on national television and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, man, that looks awesome. And that was the first ever uh, foreign film that I watched. That is so weird. Um, (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. Okay, so right now on the website, I did my column preoccupation is uh, I actually, for my birthday movie, I watched Seven Samurai. And then I talked about my relationship with Kurosawa because I'm I'm part Japanese. the first foreign film that I was ever introduced to as a child, like, so this tells you our, our different experiences because my grandmother was Japanese and my, my grandfather was, um, Mexican American. Um, I saw Ron on the Z channel when it would premiered in 84. That's cool. That, 
that's my first foreign film. So like you and I share a first foreign film. Like now, mind you, like I, I actually explain it. Go ahead and look at the article and you'll see that I didn't really understand right. anything. But <laughs> right. But like, it's so weird that you said that, that Kira Kurosawa's Ron is like one of your first experiences with a foreign film. And that was my first experience with a foreign film. That's really weird. I don't I don't know what I expected, but I remember the subtitles came up and I like paused it. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, it has subtitles. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yeah, I was just checking to see if you're okay with that. (laughs) She was like, that's fine. And so, you know, I mean, it takes you a little while to adjust to it. I think I read subtitles now uh, without even thinking about it. It doesn't detract from my viewing experience at all. No. Uh, But uh, but anyway, to to get back to the the documentary we'd been discussing, John Sales was one of those kind of, you know, my big city filmmaker so to speak where you know I would see Siskel and Ebert or somebody talking about him or like I said see you know footage of Matewan uh, on the Oscars and think man I gotta track this stuff down and so uh, you know when you lived where I lived almost everything was a cult film unless it played your local movie theater <laughs> uh, because back then it was so hard it was so hard to find stuff no absolutely well okay so is this where I break into the kids these days have it so easy speech? Well, <laughs> that's what I was going to actually ask you about, which uh, but, is wh- which. OK, so can I ask you something like like I feel like it's easier for kids to get access, but I feel like they're unwilling to watch things now. Well, it's like we. Yeah, and, it's, it's yeah. No, yeah, no, I, go ahead. I perceive the same thing. Like, isn't it weird how, like, when we were, like, when, like, when we were young whippersnappers, like, VHSs, like, there was, like, yeah. for me, I felt like there was more accessibility to, it was, there was more accessibility to everything, but it's easier now. Like, yeah, I mean, like, for me, my personal experience was, you know, everything was still you know, driven by the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days, anything. I mean, you know, Fantasy Island came out back in February and was just reviled by everybody as just being a horrible movie. And it comes out on 4K and home video and streaming and all that kind of stuff, the requisite, you know, couple months later and everything. It's like these days... It's the model is everything finds that second life or at least gets that second bite at the apple. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, you know, the video stores would have to buy copies of those movies, probably at a discounted rate, but they still had to buy them. And so then the idea was the first however many rentals that they made uh, would pay off the film, and then they were kind of into the profit on renting that film. That was the way that it worked back then. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have something like Ron would be a $100 VHS release at the time. And so the video stores would be like, man, at 4 bucks a pop, there ain't 25 people in this town that are going to rent Ron. I'm going to lose my butt. Yeah. And so then what would happen is it'd get an Oscar nomination or, you know, get nominated for best foreign film or something like that would happen. And all of a sudden the market would change and they would think, oh, yeah, now I've got a lot of people from, you know, the university and stuff like that coming in asking for this movie. I'll get it and add it to my inventory. 
And mm. so what I found growing up was, you know, you could have movies that would stay on my little Siskel and Ebert list for years until I could find a store that I could get access to it. I see. So today is is like, you know, I mean, just crazy. I mean, it's like, you know, a, a science fiction world compared to when I was a kid. If you'd said, well, one day you'll have this little device and you can just beam the movie into your little device. I'd have been looking at you like, what the hell are you talking about? And, uh, you know, I'm hanging out at the mall asking them if the new so-and-so book has come out and they're telling me they can special order it for me, but it'll take me eight weeks to get here. And, uh, you know, Amazon delivers stuff in two days. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, everything has changed when it comes to the delivery of content and, and the marketing of it and the monetizing of it. But I agree with you to get, to get around to, to getting off the nostalgia and getting around to the point is you find people tend to watch the culture of their era forward. Yep. And they don't tend to go back as much. And and nothing makes it more evident than seeing people who will tweet and, and be on Facebook and stuff and be like, well, I've seen everything on Netflix that there is to see. And I'm like, what? Are, are you serious? I mean, you know, I could put together a list of 20 films off of Netflix that were before they were born and say, have you seen any of these? And I bet you the answer would be no. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah. it's just like, you know, the stuff that has come out recently uh, and moving forward. And so, uh, and so for one thing, this film, uh, the time warp series would be a great thing for folks like that to see, uh, and see how much, you know, film history there is out there to consume, uh, and get in on and cult films and things like that. But it's almost like these days, you know, if it was, if it came out 10 to 20 years before you were born, uh, it isn't remembered. No, absolutely not. It, it is not. And it and it's kind of like that's frustrates me. That frustrates me so much um about about this stuff because um because things like like Brother from a uh, uh Brother from Another Planet are so vital and so alive. I almost said Brother from Another Mother. Yes, I did. <laughs> um That's kind of what you are to me, but Absolutely. Uh... <laughs> absolutely. But and, and also things like uh, so I like so I'd like to actually do a, a an actual uh, episode on both Buckaroo Bonsai and Liquid Sky because they're both so – and I think that – I don't think you've seen Liquid Sky, have you yet? Oh, man, you want to talk about uh, – well, uh, this is too funny. Uh, r- remind me, what label is that? Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, that's what I thought. So I'm standing at Fantastic Fest last year, if you remember this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm in between shows, and they have this big, huge uh, table set up in the lobby, and the Vinegar Syndrome banner is there and everything. And so it's them, the the guys uh, behind it are there at Fantastic Fest selling this table full of stuff. And prices were good, and, you know, they'd cut you deals if you were buying, you know, multiple titles. And so I remember between films texting you and saying, what off of this label should I get? Yes, that's that I right. Don't have and um, uh, remind me something about Tiger Mountain. Yes, um, um, the the Bill Paxton movie from yes, uh, yes, from yes. up on uh, Tiger Mountain. 
Yes, uh, yes. Liquid Sky, I think I actually yeah. did mention too. Yeah, you did. And so, <laughs> but the funny thing is, and this will let people know just how demented, you know, film fans can be and physical media collectors can be, is so I buy those films and, you know, tuck them away in my suitcase to take home with me and everything. And so I'm watching the second installment of Time Warp and they mention Liquid Sky and they're discussing it. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, you know, I need to get that so that I can see that. And so <laughs> then all of a sudden start thinking, I think I already have that. <laughs> and, uh, and I have an app that you can, you know, uh, uh, scan the barcode. Yes. You know? And so that's the only way that I can possibly keep up with all the stuff that I own and not wind up when a new edition comes out rebuying something uh, or what have you. And so I'd look real quick in the L's and sure enough, there's Liquid Sky waiting for me to uh, watch uh, because of your uh, previous advice and I'm such a movie hoarder. I didn't even realize that it was in my pile. <laughs> That's great. Like I'm, and I've forgotten about that. I recommended it to you, but then as soon as you yeah. talked about Fantastic Fest and the Vineyard Syndrome, I was like, "Damn, I know." I think it was those two plus Punty Swope were the things that I recommended. Yep, yep, and and they and they were they had already sold out of that one, and oh. so that was why I wound up with those two, uh, and not all three, as as they had actually already sold out. Uh, of that they're obviously their label is is a big hit with a, a crowd like fantastic fest absolutely and so uh but yeah so it, it was cool to see that in the time warp documentary i thought hey perfect uh, i've got one right there that uh, <laughs> that i can go see and uh and and cure one of these blind spots uh of these uh cult films absolutely so i did want to mention something that really annoyed me about this movie, about this documentary. And um, I don't know, like, so like I have to critique it in a really big way, which was, is that no Cronenberg? Yeah, that's a good point. The, I mean, we're talking about Videodrome, The Fly, The Brood. I mean, just take mm -hmm. your pick from anything from the 80s from him. Um, Dead Ringers, like all films that are like literally foundational pillars of horror, and with the fly in the in the case of the fly and Videodrome, literally horror sci-fi. Like they right. they perfectly toe the line. Right. I would, and, and they yeah, even and didn't really get into any kind of the body horror kind of element of things, which no. would be be very much you know his wheelhouse. Absolutely, and they have they literally have Jeff Goldblum. They had art, like they had Jeff Goldblum talking about uh, that's everything. That's a great point. That's a great point. I was like, dudes, and and of course the next one is about comedy, so there's no way that the fly is going to be in the comedy section, <laughs> um, or Dead Ringers. Yeah, those, yeah, those hilarious Cronenberg films. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think so. Though so. <laughs> no, I would, I would, I would propose that that. Um, Cronenberg probably thinks of his films, like, especially like the brood is mildly humorous, like these little right. demon imps, sure. like killing sure. people. Um, sure. <laughs> but no, not outright comedies. Um, so like, it was very, very disappointed to uh, disappointing to me. And it was only after they do the last film, which is Buckaroo Banzai and they have Goldblum talking and I'm like thinking to myself, oh shit, they forgot the fly, which is literally one of the like if you're talking about like cult like horror films that right. is a that is a film like that is that is like one of the pillars of like you know horror films and 
or even Videodrome. Like you talk about Videodrome as like a film that nobody talks about, but is just like talk about like current status being amazing and kind of predicting like the weird future that we're living in. Um, and I just have to throw like Cronenberg love out there. I, I've I've been waiting, and I think that in October, I think I want to do a I want to do a Cronenberg series with you, like because oh, that'd be cool. yeah, I'd because love to do that. because we both love Cronenberg. Um, and just to kind of like us pick select like us curate a, a Cronenberg like festival of sure. films through the whole month. Uh, it was something I was thinking about that I hadn't presented to you yet, but I wanted to talk about it here because. I want people to watch Cronenberg and it's like, this is the kind of film that I feel like could, could like gateway people into his work, but it just was never mentioned. It wasn't even mentioned in the first one. And right. like, I want to mention it here is that Cronenberg definitely deserves his place in the sun along with, I mean, somebody that we didn't talk about, they kind of talked about, and this is what reminded me is something we didn't talk about that. I feel like we're going to probably talk like, it's a it's a film that I love and I adore, which is uh, Reanimator. I figure that we're gonna probably do an episode about that, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But that kind of got into body horror, and that's what like kind of reminded me. I was like, oh man, they're probably gonna get into Cronenberg. That's gonna be great, and they never did. Yeah, yeah, and, no, that's a. I mean, it's easy to look at 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 a film and and discuss kind of omissions, but when you have an 83 minute runtime that's true and some of the people involved are already there with you as interview subjects you would think you could have tacked on another six seven minutes and uh tackled one of one of his films and you know you certainly wouldn't have run long yeah so but you never know you know sometimes on these things you know maybe people aren't cooperating you know maybe they approached him and he was like eh, no thanks i'd you know don't want to consider myself a cult filmmaker or something. I mean, you know, it could be somebody uh, was, you know, uh, you know, insulted by the premise or something and just didn't want to participate. And so they just didn't go there. You never know for sure uh, when it comes to documentaries. But yeah, but I, I, he was definitely worth a, uh, a mention. No, absolutely. Um, and I have to say, by the way, because of mention <laughs> and and I like them both. But have you yet to figure out what Eliana Douglas and Kevin Pollock are doing in any of these? I've okay, so I figured. <laughs> I mean, maybe the comedy episode. Maybe they're really going to tee it up, and and come to the forefront in the comedy episode is the longest one of the three. It's like two hours and eight minutes. Yes. And so, but you know, Joe Dante has said a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, John Waters has said a lot of stuff and the two of them basically have sat there uh, for almost two films, just kind of nodding and smiling and uh, occasionally making a little aside or whatever. But for all practical purposes, you and I could have been sitting there and, uh, you know, uh, done that. No, abso so, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I was just, <laughs> I was getting kind of a kick out of just watching the time go by and thinking, when are they ever going to say something? And, and as far as Eliana Douglas is concerned, I don't know if you've ever uh, read any of her memoirs or listened to her on podcasts or anything, but she is just like, I mean, from childhood to now, she has been in and around the film business. And maybe they just weren't on point, but she has more anecdotes and stories about people and insights and stuff like that, that it's just, you know, a kind of a waste not to tap into that 
So uh, I'm hoping that perhaps because uh, uh, Ileana Douglas and Kevin Pollack have been in a number of comedies that maybe their their time to shine is coming in film number three. That is what my okay. So yeah, that's my hope. Like honestly, because you're right. Like um, that is something that we should have mentioned because they literally don't say anything. Yeah, I mean, not much of anything like, oh, yeah, that was a good film or, you know, some kind of aside that just anybody would say, uh, keeping a conversation going. And so as far as some kind of insight that would merit them being there, uh, maybe this just hasn't been their subject matter yet. And they're going to be a big presence in the in the third film that uh, I believe we're going to cover in June. Yes. And so. <laughs> I'm I'm literally like I literally sat there and I like 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 you like Ileana Douglas like um it is definitely like so she is like one of the staples of the um of the TCM Film Festival like she's there right. I've interacted with her she's amazing and yeah. she does she has an ins- like she is much like like the people there, um, like especially Joe Dante, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of film, she is just as like just as intelligent. Hold on a second, my dog is murping like there's no tomorrow, so I'm gonna actually stop him from doing this, guys. Okay. All right, got him to stop <laughs> at least for a little bit. Um. So, anyways, um, she. She's definitely somebody who I thought that was has not been really active. And like you said, maybe the comedy one. And I did not realize it's two hours and eight minutes, the comedy one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it uh, uh, the first one was one hundred and five minutes. This one was the shortest one at eighty three. And the runtime is one twenty eight on the third installment and discusses cult comedies and campy classics, fast times from Ridgemont high to office space to Monty Python and the Holy grail to Showgirls, and beyond. Okay. All right. So yeah. That sets up the next episode or Abs- the next episode of, of this series. Absolutely. No, you're right. Um, and with that guys, um, I'm going to let Scott tell you where he, where you guys can find him this week. Yeah, uh, I am on Twitter at mscott underscore Phillips. And uh, then you can also find me at uh, wrbl.com where I do video reviews for a CBS affiliate here in Georgia. Uh, And then most of my written work, uh, though it's been kind of few and far between, especially during COVID times, uh, you can find at the movie owl. Absolutely. You can find um, the B-Movie podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, more active on Instagram, but uh, it's the same uh, It's the same um, handle, which is B-Movie pod, the letter B, the word movie, the word pod. Um, All together, no lines, no dashes, no nothing. Um, you can also find the Movie Isles. Um, Twitter and Instagram are the Movie Isle. Uh, no lines, no dashes, or anything. Um, you can find my work also on themovieisle.com. And uh, uh, just to kind of, add, this is going to actually post this week. Um, 
something that you will probably see both me and Scott talk about on respective uh, social media is, is that we are both going to be attending the, vir- the like our first virtual or our first film festival together, but it's going to be virtually. Uh, we're both, we're both going <laughs> to be. Isn't that figure? We're going to a film festival together. We won't even be in the same room <laughs> once again. Exactly. Um, perfect for our COVID times. Um, but uh, we're going to be attending the Chattanooga Film Festival this Memorial Day weekend. And hopefully we'll be able to podcast about some of the films that we saw um, at the festival. Um, uh, yeah, it's a great lineup. Yeah, it's it is. It's a great lineup. I uh, hope that uh, folks that listen to this podcast would give it a try. It has uh, a variety of different pass levels that you can buy. Uh, but basically, they will have uh, a batch of films available through an on-demand platform. Uh, and then they will have live podcast recordings, interviews, uh, Q&As, things like that, uh, that will be scheduled at a specific time that you can log into the video stream and watch it. And really what my hope is, you know, is not only that this is, a, you know, a substitute for now mm-hmm. uh, for a festival going, but I think if these things do well, you know, it's very possible that they would start kind of offering it as one of the tiers for film festivals once they're back up on their feet and even being done in person. Uh, because film festivals can be expensive. You know, if you don't live in the area, you've got to drive or fly. Uh, you've got a hotel stay, meals, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a huge segment of folks that would love to go to a particular film festival and just simply can't afford to. And this virtual version would allow them to do so uh, at a much, much cheaper price. I mean, you know, a couple tanks of gas and you've got your your VIP pass uh, for the whole festival. And so my hope is if it does really well financially, if a lot of people come out and support this, uh, it might be something that they would continue even when there is an in-person version available. Yes, this is my hope, too, is that I hope that this is something to come because it's very, 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 very difficult um, to – it's a very expensive proposition, but with this kind of stuff, it makes it super easy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like for Chattanooga, you know, it's $100 for the VIP pass. Exactly. First, you know, 100 bucks. I mean, it's nothing to sneeze at, but if you think that it is access to all this stuff for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, so basically $25 a day to have access to all of their programming uh, over the Memorial Day weekend when in these social distancing times, you're probably not going to a pool party or doing whatever you would normally be doing. Uh, And so it's really a great deal. No, and I mean, in most film festivals, it'd be $25 a day to park. (laughs) So, so, you know, for that same amount of money, uh, you can check out their whole lineup and all the stuff they have to offer. And, you know, every business is the same when you get down to it. If it's popular and it makes money, then they're going to find a way to expand on the idea and hang on to it. And if it doesn't, then it'll just be an experiment that didn't go so great uh, and it'll dry up and go away. So uh, the nice thing with this is, is. You know, wherever you are in the country, wherever you may be listening to this podcast, you know, you can attend the Chattanooga Film Festival next weekend. Exactly. And do so for a reasonable price. Like, I don't see that as anything but a reasonable price. Um, 
Someone yeah, so and you and I aren't being paid anything to do this. They're not a sponsor of this podcast. No, they are uh, not. We're not getting any kind of backhander from them. It's just we love film festivals and especially genre film festivals. And uh, so I would like to see them uh, get some love and some financial support because I'm selfish and I might want to do this again next year. So Absolutely. There you go. No, absolutely. And there's some really great stuff, guys. Like, uh, I, I mean, I'm personally looking forward to the live script reading of The the Thing, um, which, like, you know, any kind of live script reading is, like, really fun, um, especially if you've been, uh, if you're on social media and you've seen the the people that do those. It's a lot of fun to actually watch them play out. Um, but also just some of the films, like he said, in some of the um, like, uh, I mean, just as a as a reference, um, Shockwaves is doing a live uh, is doing a live uh, podcast and they'll be yep. zooming. Yeah. Uh, the, so like that's yeah. we were just talking about Joe Dante. He's getting a lifetime achievement award and they're going to have an in-depth discussion with him uh, about his films. They've even got a couple of world premieres. Uh, of a couple of movies, as well as uh, the second ever showing of a film that debuted at Sundance. Uh, and then, you know, quite a lot of, uh, you know, horror and action and, and what have you. It's always been one of my favorite festivals to go to. And so uh, I will enjoy uh, checking it out this year this way since I can't go. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, guys, I think this is like the perfect way to like end the podcast. We'll be back next week with some more stuff we have a uh we have a we have two podcasts in the in the can for you uh just to give you a little preview one uh, is something that we talked about back in january that's going to be really interesting like i have to re-review it just to see um what we talked about because it was before covid19 happened um uh, for a movie that's going to be released on amazon prime uh just as a little like a um, little primer for that and then another one is a movie that Y'all probably haven't thought about for years because we didn't think about it. And Scott brought it to my attention and we had a great conversation about a Ken Russell film. But you got to figure out which Ken Russell film we're talking about. That isn't the devils. So, <laughs> <laughs> so with that, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.